Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 29. This week, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Taroni Lodog. I've known Dr. Lodog since 2006, and she is an exceptional educator, teacher, and person. From her website, she puts it this way, which I think is well done. A mother, wife, herbalist, educator, author, researcher, and medical doctor. Taroni has trained hundreds of medical professionals as the fellowship director of the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. She chaired the Dietary Supplement Expert Panel for the United States Pharmacopeia and has been appointed to numerous scientific advisory boards. In addition, she has authored best-selling books, including four published by National Geographic and written over 50 peer-reviewed articles and 25 book chapters. Dr. Lodog was appointed by the President of the United States to serve on a White House Policy Commission, has received many awards from academia, public health, and industry, and has lectured over 600 conferences. Dr. Lodog is a teacher extraordinaire. She is somebody who has a deep connection to natural healing and our earth. Her profound respect for the human body's natural ability to heal itself when provided the appropriate upstream inputs in conjunction with natural and modern medicine puts her in a very unique space to help us really learn what it takes to maintain our focus on the best possible avenues towards self-care, self-help, self-healing. And we're going to get into specifically the space around women's health. And in this case, you know, the ability to prepare yourself for a high quality pregnancy and life for your child. And we're going to go deep into some of the places that she is an expert in. And in this episode, we don't get into herbs, which I was hoping to, but the conversation was so enthralling and we never got there. So we're gonna come back to that another time. But let me just say this is a lovely hour and I'm just gonna let it begin now. Well, hello, Taroni Lodog from the other side of the country. It is absolutely a pleasure to see you live and in person on Zoom. And I know you're in Phoenix, and I'm sure it's lovely out there. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so I'm so happy to be here with you and uh, and uh, just spend some time with you. I've missed you. I've missed you as well. And for the guests, uh, Dr. Lodog is one of the best teachers that I've had the pleasure of learning under in my entire 51, almost 52 years of existence. So this is an absolute pleasure for me. So T, I want to dive into our work. But before we go there, your life story is so inspiring and, and so beautiful in so many ways. Do you mind giving the audience a little five-minute blurb about how you started in life, overcame some challenges, and then became one of the world's laureates on herbal medicine and women's health? Oh, my. Well, um, I think my story is uh, is uh, one of, of great hope for all of us, right? <laughs> I feel very blessed in my life. Um, my mother, when I was young, um, did notice that compared to my brother, I did seem to have some real challenges um, with speaking 
I began to stutter a lot when I was learning to speak. And then she noticed that I was also having real challenges with, um, with just words and letters and numbers. And they took me to the United Way, which was wonderful. Uh, and there they had me working with a speech therapist to help my stuttering, which had gotten worse by the time I was around four. And they, uh, one of the therapists there diagnosed me with dyslexia, which was really a blessing because it was found very early, right? And you have to remember, I'm in my 60s, so this was a long time ago, and dyslexia wasn't even that well known. So the United Way um, was one of the few charities my parents supported throughout their entire lives um, because of the help that they gave us. I did struggle in school. I struggled in school a lot. Um, you know, so, um, I think because I stuttered and because I had difficulty with dyslexia, I learned to be a good listener, but I really didn't like school. I left school, uh, in the 10th grade and found my way though, into martial arts, which I loved and also studying midwifery, which my great grandmother was a midwife. So that felt almost like a natural calling for me. And, um, I was dealing with a seizure disorder at that time. I have epilepsy. And, um, and, and what I will say is that that really solidified at that time, studying midwifery and martial arts, it really solidified my passion for natural medicine, for herbal medicines, for organic foods and farm foods. I worked at the co-op. And when eventually um, I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, I opened up an herb shop down there and uh, I had gone to massage school uh, in 1977. So I'd learned to, to do massage. And I really, you know, from there, it was just this beautiful experience of owning a company, serving um, my community, um, helping to catch babies, um, going and making medicines. And it was much later that I actually went to medical school. I found that I uh, was not able to really help people to the extent that I wanted and that I needed more knowledge. And it was interesting because I was a single mother at the time. And when I went to the university to um, see the pre-medical advisor, she suggested I become a nurse, which I would have loved to have been a nurse um, because I love nurses and nursing. But there was this sense that you're not going to be able to be a doctor because you were a high school dropout and um, you know, you, you, you're really not doctor material kind of, and, uh, and, and so, you know, all of those things, uh, I said, well, that's wonderful, but I want to be a doctor and, you know, and, and I, and I went to finished my college and then went to university of New Mexico. Cause this is my state. This is where I live. I live in Northern New Mexico. I have most of my life in New Mexico. And, uh, and from there, it just unfolded, um, you know, being invited to Columbia University to speak. And that was really my entree. Freddie Cronenberg brought me out there because she heard I was an herbalist physician. And um, and then I served on the National Institutes of Health, their National Center for Complementary and Inter um, Integrative Medicine. And I've been chair of the United States Pharmacopeia now for various dietary supplement panels for, oh my gosh, uh, um, 24 years now, I've chaired different ones working with the Department of Defense on their methods and methodology and supplements. So I, I, I've loved all of this. My passion remains women and children's health. That's really my passion, um, caring for women and um, catching babies and taking care of, of families, you know, because I believe that for you to have healthy children, you have to have 
healthy families and for healthy families, you have to have healthy communities. And so our work stretches in, in many dimensions, which is why I, I have felt like I needed to be of service at a more national level um, as well, because I, I believe we have to continue to find ways to support families um, so that we can all experience good health. But I feel very blessed on my journey, uh, Chris. I, I feel like um, I feel like I've just been blessed my whole life. Yeah, you've had an amazing journey. And I want to read a little quote that I read in, in an article that you were interviewed for. And you said, there are some things I cannot teach you. And this is your grandmother speaking. Some things can only be learned through a lived experience. You're going to have to figure out what is right for you because there's nobody else in the world just like you. And when I read that, yeah, I think, man, what a journey you had. 16, left high school. You go out into the world, you take some journeys of your own, but you experientially figured out who you wanted to be. And I think the news to use for everybody listening is that no matter where you are in your life, you just go experience and choose a path that is yours. And I think because you chose a path that was so passionately yours, you've excelled to the top levels of, of, of all of this. And I love your story T I thought I've always had a, an amazing, you know, feeling towards you and your passion and your love of all of this stuff, especially the years we worked together. So for me, I, I think it's just such a blessing to hear you tell it live for, for the audience to hear. So let's, let's dive into this now, unless you have a comment on that. I want to get into this. I, I would just, I would say this um, for all the women, particularly that are out there listening is that a lot of times um, we're given messages when we're young, whether they're subtle or overt that, um, really tell us who we're supposed to be and and that this is the path you need to follow. And men are given, I believe, a bit more permission to explore um, who they are. And that uh, for women, I would just say, you know, just, you know, sometimes there'll be hard times and sometimes you'll feel lonely and sometimes there'll be, you know, you're kind of feel like you're swimming against the stream and all of that is fine. And that you're strong, you're stronger than, you know, um, that was the message my grandmother really gave me. That was such a blessing was that you are strong and there's nobody like you and you have to find your way in the world and not everything not everything will come from reading a book or from somebody else's experience, but really from just you living your life and, and finding the messages and the meanings that are woven into the fabric of, of your life. And so I, I just, I, I love, I love taking care of folks and I love listening to women's stories. It's a big part of what I do is just listen listen and for many women they can't stop talking like you say you know give tell me a little bit about you and they they just keep going on and on and then when you you know sort of let them take a break they they start to cry yeah. when they realize that it's been so long since somebody just listened to their story unedited unfiltered and and just listen so right. uh, that that's how I just would start the day because I know we're going to dive into all that, but it's for all the it's all for the women that are listening here and um, and all the men that and, and women that love you. Uh, but my, that's my message to the women that are listening. Amen. It's beautiful tea. So, you know, like you, I think that the world 
of medicine really needs to stay focused on women and children because that is the next generation that keeps bringing us to a better place over time. Everybody's important, but for me, you know, the name of this podcast clearly is to the focus that we have to really put more energy into making sure that women have the best of everything. So therefore they can have the best pregnancies, which then will raise the best children, which then raises the best next generation. So with that all as the backdrop, what's the state of where we're at in the United States with pre-pregnancy health? Where are the potential blind spots that moms and mothers-to-be are not aware that they're actually experiencing negative predictors of health in their just day-to-day existence? Yeah, and many women still don't know that they're planning on becoming pregnant since about half of pregnancies are not planned, right? They're just, they just happen. And so we're not taking that time. So if you're planning a pregnancy, there's so many things you can do, right? You can begin to limit your exposure to environmental toxins. You can make sure that you're tanking up on nutrients that are really important for you. You can begin to plan for how you're going to manage your stress, all of these kinds of things. But when half of pregnancies are unplanned, it means that we have to actually be a bit more proactive throughout our life, not just when we're planning on pregnancy. The amount of environmental exposures I do think is concerning because they're so ubiquitous in our environment. And so many of the products that women love to use, um, you know, the lotions and potions and all the things we like to put on our bodies, um, many of them are not clean and they can have significant implications for us if we should become pregnant and we're, and we have high levels of these. And I'm talking not just BPA, but also the phthalates that many of us are exposed to and many of the pesticides. So I, I think that it's one thing for women to try to take this on, you know, purchase things that are more organic, use, you know, EWGs, the environmental working group, skin deep to try to look up products. I think that's really important, but I also, as a public health person, believe that we have to do more from a public health perspective to clean up those things so that all of the burden is not on a woman trying to make good decisions for her and her family. So uh, reward the companies that are trying to move into more green chemistry. I'm trying to provide products that are, are cleaner. Um, so that's one thing women do need to pay attention to that. Um, so just be aware that we use far more products than men do. And that many of the products that we use um, can increase our, our blood levels of nutri of, of chemicals that are bad for us. And that we're also deficient or low in nutrients that may protect us. Um, the other big part I would say, uh, besides the nutrients, which I think we're going to talk about more like vitamins and minerals here in a moment is that, um, you know, the water you're drinking, make sure you're using filtered water. Um, EWG has an interesting part of their website also, where you can put in your zip code and you can actually look at the quality of the water that you're drinking where you're at. I'm on a well. Um, so, you know, if you're on a well, when's the last time you had your water checked? I mean, has it been years and years? So paying attention to those types of things. Um, and then if you're on a special diet, which a lot of us are, are experimenting, right? A lot of us are like, how do we want to eat and how do we want to nourish ourselves and our families? But be aware that certain types of diets may be uh, you may be missing key nutrients that are really important for you if you should become pregnant. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of women are gluten free. A lot of women are vegan. Many women are, you know, on a keto diet. 
Um, so right. just pay attention to the to the diets that you're on and make sure that if there's any missing ingredients, missing nutrients that you may be potentially low in, that you're stocking up on those by taking a good multivitamin uh, to fill in any gaps. So, you know, there, there are things that we need to do from a public health perspective. And then there's things that women can do for themselves to empower themselves while we're waiting for uh, local, state and federal governments to kind of step up to the plate. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And I think to your point that 50% roughly of the pregnancies are not planned or whatever that number is year to year. That's where mom has to somewhat step in and say, hey, my young daughter, 12, 11, 13, 14, 15, 16. I know I use those young numbers, which seem a little bit odd, but we do have pregnancies at 12 yes. and 13, which is sad, but real. So to the parents listening, that's the time when you step in and say, okay, how do we make the environment that we live in microcosmically the safest it can be water? Let's go to put a whole house filter on our drinking water to protect, even if we don't know if something slipped into our water system. I agree 100% with EWG, skin deep, learning which chemicals to avoid. The endocrine disrupting chemicals are clearly not good for us. It's hard to prove always causation, but there is a high level of certainty for me that they are not doing us any good. And I submit that Europe has it right. The precautionary principle should be what the US has, where you have to prove a drug uh, a, a chemical is safe before releasing the environment. We have the opposite. It's up to us to prove it, which you know, we know how much of a mess that is and how difficult that is. So yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. And then I really love, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into this, your point that when we do get exposed to things that are unhealthy, if our diet is not replete, then we don't have the chemicals, the phytonutrients, the things to actually protect us. So it's a double whammy. So let's go there a little bit. So let's think about the pre-pregnancy state. And we have teenagers and young women who want to get pregnant. What, you know, because I know we we were educated very well on this in the fellowship. What are we as a as a group to tell mothers and children who are going to be pregnant someday? What do the phytonutrients do to protect them and then supply the baby with the healthy nutrients? Well, so, you know, your body was actually designed to work really well at at detoxification. I mean, we have detoxification pathways in our body. So what part of the way that those pathways work in an optimal way is to make sure that our diet is diverse and that we have a whole array of plants in our diet that use the same pathways that many of these drugs and also certain chemicals use so that they detoxify. Our bodies are detoxified. And when I talk about plants and being diverse, I mean really diversity, um, cruciferous, um, so that you're getting you know, cabbage and cauliflower and broccoli, uh, lots of legumes in your diets, which are high in protein and fiber. Fiber is so important. Fiber is so important for all those good gut microbes that you need. And also for ensuring that the intestine, that barrier, that beautiful barrier that keeps things in the intestines and out of the bloodstream, it's really good. It's sort of saying this goes inside, that goes out of the body. If you don't have enough fiber, which comes from, you know, not only certain grains, but it comes from a lot from, from beans and peas and, and from fruits and vegetables, um, the intestine becomes more permeable, more leaky, driving more inflammation and making detoxification harder. So there's many, many things that we can do in the diet to ensure that our barriers are intact, 
the barriers from the mouth to the lungs, to the bladder, to the bowel, all of these barriers really matter because they're your first line of defense. So uh, for me, you know, 70% of the diet should really be based in plants. It doesn't mean that you can't have fish or chicken or even some red meat, but you know, I've always loved, um, I've always loved when meat was like the little accent. It was the little accent on the plate, you know, surrounded by other sort of plant-based foods. Uh, instead of, you know, like I grew up, which was steak was, you know, round steak was sort of the big thing on the plate with a can of peas and some potatoes, right? I mean, <laughs> that was kind of a Midwestern diet. And that was very common and not a atypical. But today, I think we know that you really need to have a lot more plants in your diet. Uh, and again, EWG, uh, <laughs> I don't want to feel like a spokesman for them, but they do have the, you know, the dirty dozen and the clean 15. It kind of helps uh, it it helps parents be able to make decisions around. I have limited money. Um, what what foods are most important that I buy organic, and which which are not as important to buy organic uh, if I'm trying to do this on a budget, which is the reality for many people, especially in a time when um, food prices are going up and people are having to make decisions around how they're spending their money. So, uh, but be clear, you know, one of the things that I see is that our fiber intake remains incredibly low and you need around 30 grams per day. Men need higher, but on average, if we could try to get 30 grams and that can be a stiff climb uh, for people, if you don't have legumes, if you don't have beans, if you don't have a lot of fruit and vegetables in your diet. So focus on that. It drives down inflammation, maintains those barriers and helps with your body's natural detoxification processes. Yeah, and I agree. And I'll I'll dovetail on that discussion by being a pediatrician. I'm looking at the world clearly from the side of what the child gets out of this as well. So when mom is working really, really hard on keeping her microbiome and all of her barriers, as you say, intact, the child gets some of that. So when you're delivered vaginally, you are coming through a canal that it has 5% of the microbes in the in, in the female body. And then you get a huge bolus of, of bacteria from the or microbes that, that come from the stool when you deliver naturally. So that is actually the child's first window into how their microbiome will then play out. So it is not just, just for mom, it's for baby too, which is always the big piece of why I think maternal health is so critical because you're not just taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your child, which I know all mothers know and are so, so focused on doing the best for themselves and for their children, which to, to your point, that's the big piece of the pie. So let's now dive into we've set up the the situation where we have good food and we're supposed to be eating well, but not everybody's perfect every day. Not everybody's doing exactly what they need to do perfectly. So usher in the world of multivitamins, right? And so one of the places where it was very clear that multivitamin, multimineral supplements made a difference was pregnancy. And first off, yeah. it was mostly with folic acid. And then, oh, by the way, which I, I really should, shouldn't say folic acid, should be folate. Mm -hmm. um, folic acid just happens to be the form that is is stays in the system better. Um, but I don't think it's the one that's going to turn out to be the best version, but like things like choline iron. So talk to us about why that became so important and where the data lies around that. So, you know, there has been a number of studies that have been published looking at deficiency rates and risks. And we know that uh, women in general are more likely to be deficient in a key nutrient than men uh, and, and that pregnant or breastfeeding women have the highest risk of deficiency at about 47%. So roughly half 
of pregnant and breastfeeding women are at risk for at least one micronutrient deficiency. Micronutrients are your vitamin and minerals. Macronutrients are things like fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. When we look at adolescence, um, we know that even starting in adolescence, that uh, about 57% of girls in the UK, this was an interesting study, found them to be very low in riboflavin. And we haven't done a lot of that research here in the United States, so we don't know. But that was that was interesting because riboflavin is really important for iron homeostasis. And when it's very low, it increases the risk for anemia. Uh, and, and that we're not looking for that. We're just looking at iron. We're just looking at ferritin markers, things like this. But riboflavin is also um, very important for maintaining and preventing migraine, headaches, and others. So, you know, this is something to pay attention to. In the United States and in Canada, we have found that in young adolescents and in young women, that they are at higher risk or looking at their diet, that they're not getting enough thiamine, they're not getting enough zinc, they're not getting enough B6, they're not getting enough B12. That's also strongly correlated with uh, mood and sleep, et cetera. So, you know, and then the 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 big dietary study we do in the United States, the NHANES, um, that is a CDC um, big national study where they're also taking blood and urine samples. They found that, you know, adolescents between 14 and 18, you know, about a third of them were at high risk for low vitamin C and D and calcium and magnesium and adolescent girls, very high frequency of having low iron. So when we hear things on the news that say people are getting everything they need in their diet, that's actually not substantiated by the government's own work, right? I mean, by right. their own data. And we can look at the UK, we can look at Canada, we can look at the United States and see this. And so this is what I mean. It's like a multivitamin is important, I believe, for most of us um, throughout our lives because, because many of us um, eat processed and ultra-processed foods. I don't know if you saw this, Chris, but uh, recently it was shown that 67% uh, of the calories in children actually come from ultra processed foods. About 57% of calories in adults come from this. And an ultra processed food is designed as a food that's so heavily refined and processed that it basically um, has lost most of its nutritional value. So this is why I say that I think it's difficult for people to get everything they need in their diet because so many of us are eating foods that are so heavily processed. So starting as a young child and then moving through adolescence where, where we need to be very cognizant, not only if pregnancy could happen, um, a, a young woman could become pregnant, but also just for her quality of life, her mental health, her mood, her sleep, et cetera. One thing that I think that many women don't realize is the impact of oral contraceptives on certain nutrients and specifically vitamin B6. Uh, we know that about 20% of women 15 to 19 are on birth control pills, roughly 22% of women 20 to 29. So when we're looking, when we're looking at that age group, we're finding like 40 to 42% of, of females in this age group are taking an oral contraceptive. We've known for a long time that oral contraceptives deplete vitamin B6. As a matter of fact, the CDC found in their large uh, NHANES survey that about 30 million Americans are, are, are just deficient. We're not talking about low. 
in, in the nutrient, they're deficient in vitamin B6, which leads to fatigue, tiredness, poor concentration, depression. And we know that we know that the group that is most vulnerable for that, um, for being deficient in B6 are women on oral contraceptives. And, and I'll tell you in my own practice, uh, a lot of women go off their birth control pills and then become pregnant. And if we've not corrected that B6 deficiency, if she was on those birth control pills six, seven years, now goes off and she becomes pregnant, we know that they're at, at a much greater risk for having miscarriage, early uh, preterm loss, and also preterm birth. So, you know, this is what I'm saying that, you know, we're we're not having enough discussions, real discussions about where women may be falling short. And 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 Chris, I don't understand the disconnect between here's the CDC going out and collecting all this data and we have all of this data and it's for free public consumption. We can all go look at it. And, and you know, B6 deficiency outside of vitamin D was the most common deficiency the CDC found. And yet where was the public health message? Where was the message to pediatricians, primary care docs, OBGYNs, who, who are taking care of women who are on birth control pills to just even give them the message, perhaps you should be checking, you know, a, a, a B6 level to make sure that they're not deficient um, at any time. Um, you know, the correlation between women who go on birth control pills and then within four to five years are on antidepressant therapy is not lost on me. And one has to question if that is just simply the function of B6 levels continuing to plummet and uh, poor concentration, fatigue and depression beginning to rise. So uh, anyway, I, I think there's a lot to discuss here, but that's just a little bit of the background outside of folate and choline and iodine. Those right there are, um, you know, th those are significant. And also what about, what about low iron? Um, you know, you mentioned iron, low iron is, is so rampant in women 12 to 49 years of age. And while white women, non-Hispanic white females also, you know, about, about 8% have low iron that climbs to 12% in Hispanic women and 16% in African-American women. And what are the implications for low iron in a, you know, 18 year old African-American woman? Um, it, it impacts her scholastic work. It impacts her ability to acquire and retain new knowledge. It, it impacts her ability to exercise and be physically active. I mean, all of these things are so, they, they disrupt our ability to live our, our full potential and yet they're not checked that often and we're not we're not that cognizant of it. So again, nutrients matter. Uh, yeah. And when women stopped eating, you know, we've now, a lot of us have cut down our meat consumption. Uh, we have to be thoughtful about where we're getting, you know, our complete, you know, fatty acids, essential fatty acids and where we're getting iron from. But, but these are, these are things that really matter. They matter if you're pregnant, but they also just matter for a woman's life and for children's life. I, I testified before Congress actually about not only this, this, but in children, you know, we see about 12% of our Hispanic children um, between the ages of one and five, roughly 12% have extremely low iron. And many times we have pediatricians or primary care doctors that are not checking ferritin. They're not following this in a two-year-old. And if you don't know to look, you just might not. And a hemoglobin and hematocrit are really not sufficient 
you know, at one year of age to really determine, you know, it's like waiting for anemia is kind of like waiting for somebody to be jaundiced before you tell them there's a problem with their liver. So, you know, these are just, you know, these are my passion, Chris, um, you know, and this is my areas in dietary supplements. And so that's, that's an area that I think we all need to be cognizant of. Yeah. And I think it speaks to T on so many levels where we base the RDA as you're not scurvy. So you're fine, or you don't have rickets. Right. So you're fine. Or, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. We're not trying to optimize human performance. And especially when you talk about pregnancy, these are big deals, low iron and mom will mess her sleep up. will mess, like you yeah. said, her cognitive ability, but then the yeah. child's neural neural pathways yes. aren't being formed appropriately. Yes. And they, they end up struggling. And, and I have done a deep dive myself personally in the whole choline world, because, you know, choline is not being put in the supplements the way it's supposed to be. And I know you had a special interest in this with the, the mega food. Uh, I think it was baby and me too. Yes. And, and, and when you look at the science behind it, Steven Zizel's work and a bunch of others, it's very clear that choline is a major player in neural tube, as well as neural um, pathway, sphingomyelin, a whole host of pathways involved in brain development. You know, I have my own personal bias on this stuff. I think it's it's quite amazing to me that we don't take into account that we're all unique individuals. We have different single nucleotide polymorphisms. My homocysteine runs high if I don't take a supplement. Now, I eat very well. I work really hard at trying to have all the foods on the plate that are diverse and wonderful and try and make my body as pillar, uh, you know, a pillar of health. But oh, by the way, when I check my homocysteine, which is independent risk factor for dis different diseases, if I don't take a B complex vitamin with choline in it, it rides above 11. And that is not where it wanna be. So when I hear the, the statements from the national media, oh, multivitamin, multimineral supplements don't work, this and that, they are, completely not looking at the reality of all of us and how our bodies function naturally in 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 a system and yeah. to your point 66 percent of the teenage food diet is ultra processed as bonnie kaplan says not food right <laughs> she she made a big point when i called it ultra processed food she goes no 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 it's not food and and if that's what we're starting from how do we not want to scream from the rooftops that this is what we need to be doing? So I 100% agree, T, that this is the pathway we need to be helping people understand. And I actually, all of our kids, once they hit um, their their pubertal age range, we have them all in prenatal vitamins as their base multivitamin, just in case they happen to get pregnant. Um, yeah. We we, we yeah. really want them to, to do those things. So how segueing a little bit here how does the once the pregnancy state starts so mom and dad have conceived a child what do you discuss at all if there are any changes to what the person the mother should be doing as it relates to diet nutrition exercise or none right well it's a whole conversation that goes on for months Right? right. I mean, because during that time when you're pregnant, um, how you're managing your stress, you know, how well are you sleeping? How are we going to keep those bowels moving? <laughs> yeah. How are we going to manage maybe in later pregnancies, some little bit of reflux that may be happening? Um, 
you know, what do you, you know, what do you do as far as movement? What was your physical activity like before? And how are we going to keep you moving through? Um, are you interested in yoga? Have you ever done yoga? What about some prenatal yoga? Um, I also think it's wonderful for pregnant women to be with other pregnant women whenever possible, um, because we support each other. We, we share with each other. After the baby's born, I think mommy groups are also wonderful where, you know, we can share with each other. It's like, oh gosh, you know, I'm breastfeeding and this is happening. Oh, that happened to me too. And my lactation consultant told me women share. This is part of our, this is part of our lineage. It's part of what we do. We share with one another. And so, you know, this journey is going to be from everything about, you know, don't change the cat litter. This is time for somebody else to empty the cat litter, right? And 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 let's be really thoughtful about, you know, don't use flea and tick collars or don't do that on your animals. Have somebody else do that on your animals. Don't be using flea and tick powder. I mean, I'm talking, this is the whole long laundry list, right? It's right. like, how well are you hydrating? And uh, what about your diet? What are you eating? For me, I'd like to tag along a little bit on choline because it's been something so... It's been a personal mission of mine for years <laughs> now. Um, you know, I, I got really interested in choline back in 2011, 2012, when the data really started looking at the impact on not only while mom is, you know, pregnant, but also in the first thousand days of the child's life. So while in utero, and then that first thousand days, that first thousand days is so precious. And that includes the time that the baby is, is um, being carried within the womb. But choline, we know somewhere between 90 and 95% of women do not get the adequate intake of choline. That's across the spectrum. But your need goes up during pregnancy to 450 milligrams per day. And it goes up even higher when you're breastfeeding to 550 milligrams. And I'm telling you, it's, it's, it looks kind of impossible to get that level uh, in the diet today. It wasn't a hundred years ago. It wasn't. Uh, I think back to my own childhood, my mother cooked liver. I hated liver. I hated liver. I bet many of the listeners on this, on this uh, cast today are saying, oh yeah, I remember when my mom cooked liver, you could smell it down the street, you know, and she smothered it with onions and it stank and it was terrible. But many of us grew up eating chicken or beef liver at some point. Um, that was, that was considered really precious, important food. The other place that we, and it was rich in choline, liver is one of the most nutrient dense foods that we have. But the other place that we got choline was from our egg yolks, right? And, and so we've had this love hate relationship with eggs now for since the 1970s. Eggs are good for you. No, they're bad for you. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Oh, but the egg white is good. Just get rid of the yolk. And so when I look at when I look at what we did to the diet, how we shifted the diet away from, you know, sort of organ meats, which many of us don't like to eat, let's be honest, but then to eggs, which actually, you know, was a good source of protein, was a good source of B12, good source of, of, of choline. Many of us dropped the ball there too. And when you start to look at other sources of choline, it drops dramatically. We know from, you know, what, 40 animal studies, about 16, 17 human studies, that choline is absolutely essential for supporting the normal development of the brain, for protecting against 
you know, certain sort of, you know, neuronal and, and metabolic insults that can happen during pregnancy, but also when the baby is born. And it's crucial for cognitive functioning. And, and, and when you look at the data, looking at how it also sets the tone then for the nervous system so that, so that as a baby, as I grow older, I'm able to tolerate stress. I'm not as vulnerable to um, stressors. It increases my resiliency. Oh my goodness. That just became, when that data began to come out, you began to look at the work that was being done by leaders in the field, such as what you've already met, whom you've already mentioned. I said, this is, we've got to do something about this, testify before Congress, you know, do other things, you know, right, but, right. And, and I would add that the American Medical Association unanimously voted, unanimously voted that choline should be mandatory in prenatal vitamins. So, right. so, so this is the level what, what, that we're at. American College of OBGYN, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, the European Food Safety Authority. Everybody agrees choline needs to come in, but what is the choline amount in most prenatals if it exists? 30, 40, 50 milligrams, very right. small. So right. when Megafood, a company came and asked me if I would be willing to design um, some vitamins for them, especially a prenatal vitamin, what I told them was this. I'll only do it if you allow me to make a multivitamin that would be that would be adequate for my daughter who would be carrying my grandchild. If you let me make a vitamin that I would give to her for her well-being and the health of my grandchild, I'll I'll do it for you. And we we struggled. I you know, I wanted 400 milligrams of choline. They said we can put in 100. We settled right. at 300. Milligrams, we were the first prenatal vitamin to include any significant amount of choline. Uh, and Forbes actually ranked us um, in, in earlier this year, the number one uh, prenatal vitamin in the marketplace. So we that was very important for me. Um, but, but the importance was, you know, we know we're getting a couple hundred milligrams in our diet, but we're way short of the 450 or 550. This gives women a chance to get to that level right. um, for choline. So- and I know as a pediatrician, you know this too, but it's also why if you're breastfeeding, it's important that you continue to take a supplement with choline. It's crucially important. Think of choline as a member of the B family. It's it's We didn't know it was really an essential nutrient until 1998, but it is now, think of it like as part of that whole orchestra of B vitamins um, that's really crucial when you're pregnant. So I, I'm a really strong advocate of that. And the other one is iodine, which... I never thought in my life, I didn't, I did not think in my life, I was going to see us actually, you know, women as a whole cohort between 20 and 39 become borderline insufficient for, for iodine. We, I mean, we've been iodizing our salt since 1924. So I didn't think this was an issue, but now most women are not cooking at home. They're buying processed and packaged foods or they're eating out. None of that salt is iodized. Basically, the only place you're going to find iodized salt is in your salt shaker at home. And recently, when I was out looking for iodized salt, um, I had to search down on the lowest shelf at the grocery store to find any salt that contained iodine. Almost all of it was free of iodine. And this is a problem because even mild deficiency right. has been associated, correlated with autistic spectrum disorder, 
attention deficit hyperactive disorder, language and literacy disorders such as dyslexia. So even just a mild deficiency can be a problem, which is why the American Thyroid Association has finally come out and said all women who are even thinking about becoming pregnant, who are pregnant or are breastfeeding, should be taking a supplement that contains 150 micrograms of iodine. So I, I just, you know, I, again, you know, this is this is why messages like we're getting everything we need in our diet is not true. Right. Uh, it used to be true because we'd throw a little salt from our salt shaker and all of our salt growing up, you know, was was iodized. Um, but but women like kosher salts and Himalayan salts and pink salts and all kinds of things today. So we're we're going to have to find other ways to get it. Uh, dairy and seafood are the other major dietary sources, right? Dairy, dairy and seafood. But a third of Americans never eat seafood. And many people have moved to almond milk or, you know, oat milk for a variety of reasons. But it also means now that they're not they're not getting it from their dairy products. So just a constellation of things that have led to um, to women being at risk. Uh, for them and their babies and the consequences to the babies can be lifelong. And that's yeah. the real problem. Can you may think of a hypothyroidism, you know, in, um, uh, in a, in a baby turns out to be complete and, and severe mental uh, dysfunction. Yes. And you think about, you know, thyroid hormones contain four to three iodines, depending on which piece is, is, is a T3 or T4. And if you don't have all the iodines, you're just going to have a suboptimal functioning thyroid, which then turns into suboptimal functioning uh, childhood development. So I, I I agree. It's just the mechanistic pathways are here. The understanding is here. It's yes. just yes. where where is the 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 passion in society to say, okay, this is what we need to do. And then to, then you, you, like you were talking about before we started, like, here we go. A published study says multivitamins don't do anything across right. the board. So therefore we throw everything out with the bathwater. Right. And it's insanity. Right. And, yeah. and yeah. I'm screaming from the rooftops in our clinic all the time, folks, we yeah. need to make sure we're food first, but then a, hey, by the way, Food first is not enough all the time. So let's get a secondary supplement to back this system up. And 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 then, you know, fish oil becomes a big piece. And to your point yes. also, you think about yes. breastfeeding. When a mom starts breastfeeding, uh, you know, God and nature, however it's all played out, set this up so that the baby is going to get what it needs from mom. So if mom starts becoming deficient or insufficient herself, she starts to feel bad. Eventually the whole system may go south. The child may not get what they need. And, and so to make sure mom continues to supplement all the way through pregnancy and through lactation is critical, I it's think, crucial. for the long-term outcome. And, you know, first 2000 days is the way I see it. Actually, a thousand days for a baby and a thousand days pre-pregnancy for mom yes. to me makes the most sense for the yes. most ideal outcome for a a human to be unfettered by disease, not knowing what their individual genetic makeup may be that could put them at harm. I mean, I think about all this discussion about MTHFR backwards and forwards and this and the other thing. Well, why wasn't MTHFR causing problem 100 years ago? Well, to some people, it probably was, but people didn't, again, eat so poorly back then. So they had access right. to to, to right. folate in right. volumes that would surpass right. the the dysfunction yes. in MTHFR, if you had a snip of, you know, C677T, whichever one that goes south that way. So yeah, I, T, I think we've proven without a shadow of a doubt, the mechanistic pathways are here. The understanding is here. It's just, we don't have the 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 national push to follow through with what we need to, to do. But 
Um, it, it is you. it is important, and, and you know, and I'm a food first person too. I mean, you know, I'm I've uh, I've raised two healthy kids. I'm hoping to have grandchildren. Uh, I'm a woman myself in my 60s, and and so for me, um, you know, food is food is medicine, right? Or right. it's your you know, I heard said once, you know, it's all, or it could be your slowest form of poison, right? Over yeah. years, and years and years of eating poorly, it can be yeah. very uh, bad for the body. But I don't understand the. I really don't understand the pushback for like a basic multivitamin. I really, I just really don't. Um, especially when we're getting messages like 67% of calories in children are from ultra processed foods. Well, okay. So then what do you think is going to happen? And, and, you know, we just came out of a, a, of a pandemic. I mean, we just came out of a pandemic and, you know, we know that obesity and, and diabetes and other things put people at greater risk for having more severe illness. Um, but there was nothing there was nothing being done in this country about how to help people other than stay home and mask and wash your hands. There was no there was nothing that empowered people to right. sort of do something. And when right. women when people feel like there's nothing they can do except, you know, wait for a vaccine or or wait for treatments or wait to get sick. Yeah. Um, I think this is a bad state to be in. And it certainly drove the mental health um, you know, anxiety and depression and sleeplessness, you know, just soared during that. And so this is what I mean. It's like, how much evidence is the evidence necessary, right? So, you know, how many studies, you know, 38 in animals, 16 in humans for choline, you know, every authority saying it should be in prenatal vitamins. I mean, so why isn't it? I mean, it, so part of this is just a lack of will, but it's also, um, you know, a pharmaceutical, if this was a pharmaceutical, it'd already be out there, it'd already be prescribed, it'd be a $2 copay, or it'd be free under, you know, un right. under uh, our, our Medicaid, and you know, what kind of programs, but right. it's not, it always stays outside. And as you know, you know, we're both integrative medicine physicians. And this was always my problem when things are alternative and outside, it's so hard to ever bring them just mainstream, because they always sort of stay outside. And this is an area for me where we're talking about the lives of women and we're talking about uh, about children being born and and being raised and not having the key things that they need to be to be fully functioning, happy and content uh, people as they move through their lives. And, and our diet has changed over the last hundred years and it continues to change. And we did a bad job. We did a bad job in the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s saying low fat, low fat, low fat, low oh, fat, yeah. low fat, which then put people at higher consumption of carbohydrates and more refined foods um, as if the fat was the worst thing in the world. And then we looked at the Mediterranean diet and said, wow, this is a high fat diet. Look at all the olive oil they consume. If fat is really the problem, why do they have such better health than we do? Right. So we, you know, I would just say we've confused people a lot. And I own part of that as being a physician, um, that that we have not done a great job of helping people understand what really constitutes a healthy diet. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing we didn't mention that I do talk to women about um, is that while vaginal birth is the optimal we want babies to be born vaginally. I'll just tell you as somebody who's caught babies um, that sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes um, a, a cesarean section may be required um, to protect the mom's life and, and or the babies. Um, sometimes mom may have 
um, something called group B strep, where we have to give intrapartum antibiotics. We know that these things can really um, disrupt that natural maternal transfer of microbes to the baby. Right. And so then the question becomes, okay, so if that happens, are there ways that we can sort of make up for the loss that happened? Right. So I, I think that, you know, I, I'm very interested in, um, you know, vaginal transfer of microbes. I think some of that data is very interesting. I had a friend who just said, who knew she was going to have to have a cesarean section. And she said, could we just put some gauze in, in my vaginal vault, in, you know, in my vagina? And then once the baby's born, could you just take that and wipe that sort of on the face and on their, on their genital area and on their skin? And the doctor was like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure. And then she said that the baby was going to come through my vagina anyway. So what are you really doing that wouldn't naturally happen? And they, and they, they agreed, but as you know, there's some data suggesting we're not there yet, but the data is suggesting that this could be a very interesting way of trying to inoculate the baby. Fecal transfer is another, you know, that we're looking at, but even if we step back and say, okay, you know, we're not going to do that. What about the role of probiotics? And I would say that there's a number of strains of probiotics that have shown when it's administered to the baby after birth and for this first six to 12 months of life, it can have a profound ability to reduce allergic sensitization, um, you know, atopy, um, the number of colds and coughs, antibiotics, et cetera. So I do talk to moms about taking a probiotic the last five weeks or so of pregnancy, last five or six weeks of pregnancy, you can take it longer, but when it's really important is that last five to six weeks. And then to consider giving the baby some probiotics as well as vitamin D, if she's breastfeeding, needs to start vitamin D within just a few first few days of the, uh, the baby's life. That And there's products now that have you know, that are readily available that have the probiotics that were studied as well as the vitamin D. So in one, two drops, mom can give everything the baby needs. Um, but I, 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 you know, these are, these are the things it's like, what mother doesn't want to give their baby the best head start or, or father or, or mothers, you know, however you define your personal family um, and, and the way you're there, you're bringing your child into the world. It's like, I want to give them every chance possible. I don't want them starting out with a deficit. And I feel it's important to say to moms who may be listening to this podcast, who already had their children, had a C-section, didn't do this, didn't even know about it. That's all okay. You know, because moms, we feel guilty about everything. We feel right. like, you know, we, we carry such a burden in our lives about our kids. And I would just say, look, as we know more information, we incorporate it. But um, all the things we're learning is never to make you feel bad about however you brought your child into the world. You know, wherever you are today, this is the day you start. Every little step that you take, you know, I, I'd rather, you know, I, I've had moms come in and they feel bad because they don't feel like they're feeding their kids right. And I'm like, okay, sister, let me just tell you, I think it'd be better to have a bowl of ice cream reading a story, holding hands, loving one another, then eating a salad with people fighting at the table. I mean, it's, it's like, this is a whole picture. This is, this is not one little thing. Every day we wake up and we can say to ourselves, you know, how do I want to bring the best to my family today? Like, what do I want to do 
for the best for me and my family today. And every day is a new day to start that. But there is an intention. I, I'm somebody who meditates and I believe in intention. And it doesn't happen every day in my life, but it happens a lot of days. I wake up and think, you know, wow, I'm glad I woke up today. What a blessing. And what am I going to do good in the world today for me and mine and for others? So I just wanted to point that out because I do have women sometimes come up to me when I'm speaking at a conference and almost with tears in their eyes, Chris, and saying, I didn't know any of this. I mean, I've got an 11 year old now with ADHD and, you know, and she's having problems. And do you think it's because I didn't do this or I didn't do that? And I'm like, honey, let's just start with where we are right here today. Just right here today. Not what you didn't or didn't do because you can't change any of that. Let's talk about Let's talk about your girl now. Let's talk about your child now. And I think that it's just important because I want all the women who are planning on becoming pregnant, all the moms who have girls and daughters and sons uh, that, that are going to grow up maybe to be parents. I think there's all this we can do, but I just wanted to put that little something out there because it's my lived experience that many women will hear this who've already had children and say, gosh, you know, what did I do to my kids? And I'm like, I'm sure you did the best you could. I'm sure you did the best you could. And the most important thing a child has always hands down, no matter what, is that they know that there's at least one person in the world that loves them more than anything without condition. And that they know no matter what they ever do, there's nothing that can ever change that love and that bond. And if a child has that growing up, it is worth, it is worth more than gold. So. Yeah. Yeah. The epigenetic marks that occur in a child living in a beautiful home. And then to your point, I think we don't spend enough time protecting the pregnant mother's. Yes. Mind, energy, happiness. Um, There's no doubt those marks get sent to the child as well. I know Moshe Schiff's work is very clear that nature and nurture. So we start to look at all of these things. I know Native American tradition is always protect the pregnant mother at all costs from stress, because as we know, stress is the number one undoer of human health. I mean, you name any metabolic pathway, you put somebody under chronic stress, they're going to have metabolic disarray from hyperglycemia to poor lipid, dis, uh, poor, poor fat uh, distribution, uh, blood pressure rises, all the above. I had Rick Johnson on and he's going to be publishing some new work that hasn't come out yet, but there's some pretty clear evidence that dietary intervention, I mean, dietary interventions by removing certain sugars, specifically high volumes of fructose can decrease preeclampsia. But what also drives sugar through the roof is cortisol. Cortisol. What is cortisol being driven by? All the things you're talking about, stress, not sleeping enough, all of the above. And I want to go back a little bit to some of your earlier comments, T. I think from the probiotic perspective, Evivo, the, the probiotic that's Bifidobacter subspecies infantis, their work is probably some of the best immune-based research that I've seen of any probiotic out on the market. And that's actually my number one favorite um, probiotic now to recommend for pre for the pre-pregnant or the, excuse me, for the pregnancy state perinatally five weeks, like you're saying beforehand. And then also for the baby uh, to, to get that adequate source. And then Maria Dominguez Bello's work. I, I'd love to get her on the podcast. I think that fecal microbial transplant should become yes. the standard of care. Yes. You know, yes. the argument I've had from ROBs, you know, and I don't want to name anybody by name, but is, oh, they could have, um, 
you know, uh, herpes or that. Well, well, if we know that up front, fine. That's why you're doing the C-section. Then don't swab that mom. But everybody else that's here yeah. for just a generic C-section, swab and go. Because this is, it's asinine on every level to say that this is not a functionally useful, you know, this is what nature was intending. So let's, yes. let's stick to that paradigm and stop messing around with, we have to have a double bind placebo controlled trial to prove jumping out of an airplane will kill you. Right. No. <laughs> right. Stop. Some common sense at some point, if yeah. you're waiting, you know, but, but it's so funny, Chris, because I was at a conference once many years ago when we were studying ginkgo, there was the big trial that was going on for ginkgo. Yeah. And an 85 year old man came up to me. I was speaking up in Montana and he comes up to me and he says, dear, you seem like a very good doctor, <laughs> but you know, I'm 85 years old. I'll be dead by the time this study's done. I just want to know your best guess. And that was so powerful to me because, you know, what it also spoke to was that, you know, life is just continuing to happen as we're waiting for randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. And so when there's a certain amount of evidence and we're looking at great benefit and minimal risk, um, one has to question, you know, how much more evidence is needed while we're waiting for all of this to happen. So I, I, um, I, I agree with you. I, I, um, the stress, you know, just so many pregnant women, um, you know, they just, they do have a lot of stress. They're, they're still working. Um, they're, they're managing their lives. Uh, relationships may be great. Relationships may not be great. They may be alone. Um, you know, I've just been it. I've just cared for so many pregnant women over the last 40 years, just so many pregnant women uh, and have been able to listen to their stories. And and the stress can be very high. So how do we that's why prenatal yoga, it's why meditation. Um, but but there also, you know, there, there also needs to be, um, you know, this is where communities step in. This is where families reach out to one another. Uh, how do you help women who feel alone in the world not feel alone? And and this is why um, it's why communities are important. It's why having a tribe of people that that you connect with that are similar in thinking, not identical in thinking, that, that would be boring. But 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 other people that can help support you. It's like when I was a midwife and and people would come by to see the baby. I would have a big sign on the door. We would love to see you, but please bring food, wash dishes, take a load of laundry, um, you know, be thoughtful of how you can help support this young family as um, they're as they're getting to know their newborn. And, you know, and then all these people would be like, oh, that's a great idea. I'll bring over some food. Oh, I'll take the laundry. I'll do the towels. I'll do the." And how many of them just said I didn't. Like I never thought of it. I just never right. thought of it because what I was doing was come to see the baby. Well, mom hasn't slept. She's right. tired. She's trying to nurse a baby. She's wondering if her milk's going to come in. You know, if she has a partner, the partner's probably at work unless he's lucky enough or she's lucky enough to have maternity or paternity leave. And the last thing she needs to do is now entertain people. So, you know, part of this is, is, is just the attunement, right? Of of helping people become more attuned, for the woman herself to become more attuned. You know, write letters. My, you you probably remember this, but for me, one of the biggest things I advocate and recommend 
I would give gifts of a of a journal and a pen and a little thing of tea in a glass jar with her name on it, usually with just like raspberry and nettles and something nice to drink. And I would gift this to women um, as they began to enter their, you know, sixth, seventh month of pregnancy. And I said, I want you to drink a cup of this tea, you know, most days. And as you sit and sip the tea, I want you to write letters to your baby. And I want your letters to be about like your own life. Put a picture of you. What are you doing? You know, what, what's your life look like? What are your dreams for your baby? What are the things that are your hopes and fears? And write to your child. And when that child is 16, 17, 18 year old, years old, give them your journal. So with my own son, when I gave him on his 18th birthday, which I advise, don't give it on their 18th birthday. They want to go out and party and do all kinds of things. But <laughs> the next day he comes out, you know, in his boxers and he comes into the kitchen and he puts his arms around me. He's like six foot tall. And he was like, wow, mom, like you were so young. You were so young and you were so beautiful. And I just like, thank you. But he, you know, was growing older with me as I was growing older. And so for him to see this, you know, a woman in her twenties, not that much older than him, you know, having a child and being pregnant and all the things I was thinking of and my own dreams for my own life and my dreams for him, the power of that for him to see that was something. And for me, it was powerful for me to write this because it connected me in such a deep and powerful way with this being inside of me and all the things that I was hoping and wishing while I was pregnant. That, that's more than like, oh, I'm just going to drink my little pregnancy tea. It was a ritual and rituals are ways that we set apart, we set time apart. We create sacred space for us to really recognize how sacred it is to be pregnant and to carry this child. And, you know, and then you bring this child into the world. And at that moment, you realize that you just, you just walked between this world and the next world. I mean, it's a dangerous thing for a woman to bring a child into the world. It is. And so it's a powerful moment. And that moment you put that baby to the breast, it's like that moment I put my son and my daughter to my breast, I felt every woman in my lineage, my mother, my grandmothers, their mothers, their grandmothers, every person in my lineage I felt was in that room with me, supporting me, holding me, telling me that they had done this, that they had brought life into the world. And that that was, I was one link in this beautiful, beautiful long chain of women who had brought children into the world and raised them. And I knew at that moment that that was, that was one of my callings in this world. I was being called to be a mother and that, that my job, my privilege, my responsibility was to care for their soul and their bodies until they were old enough to go out in the world, that they were not my child. That was not my child. That was a holy child that belonged to God, belonged to the universe and that my job was to care for them like they were something holy and sacred until they were willing to go into the world on their own. So, you know, if we hold that, Chris, if that's the way we hold pregnancy and birth and children, it's a powerful way to do it. And it lifts women, it lifts women, and it lifts children. Um, and, it, and, and, and it's a hope for our future. 
when a woman says to me, I don't know if I should bring a child into the world. It's so messed up. It's so bad. It's so horrible, you know, and, and I just listen, I just listen. And then I'm like, but I wonder if your child is the one that will make the difference, you know, mm-hmm. how do we know how the world unfolds and how we each play a role in it? So anyway, I want to take a big breath. I've got a lot more to ask, but I'm not. I'm going to stop here. This is the most perfect ending. We're going to have to have you on another time to dive deep into the herbs and other things related to this topic, but we're not going to do that today. I had another question I'm going to ask, and I'm not going to do that either. I think this (laughs) is the ending. And I just want to, uh, man, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for putting out there such genuine honesty, joy, love for humans, Um, your work over uh, all these years from the joys that I had of meeting you in 2006 to all of the time that has happened over your life, giving away your gifts to the world. I just want to say thank you. Thank you, brother. You're you're a special being and thank you for doing the work that you do um, with children and families. And, uh, you know, we're all making a difference. Every one of us and every person listening, each of one of us is doing our part to be a light in the world. So I want to thank you. I'm humbled and honored that you uh, chose me to share some time with today. And uh, I wish you and all your listeners just a, a wonderful blessing. Thanks, T. Bye-bye. I think this conversation speaks for itself. Not going to have to go into too much detail now as a wrap-up. Just, you know... Listening to all the wisdom that Dr. Lodog has to offer is enough. This is the point at which I think we as a society need to start spending our monetary and collective energy towards helping women have the best outcomes in life, no matter what that looks like, whether it's supporting them in the pre-pregnancy state, during pregnancy or post-pregnancy as the family unit, providing more help to mothers and families so that people can stay home a little longer with their kids. They can have good nourishing food on the table for mom pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy, and post-pregnancy. All of the simple basics of life that allow us to be nourished, mind, body, and soul, to have healthy pregnancies, healthy lives, healthy children, and healthy outcomes. These are the keys. These are the places we should be spending time talking about as society as individuals as groups and therefore start to make change at the grassroots level as always and then hopefully affect change up the chain all the way to the federal level and the state level these are the causes worth fighting for your mother your sister your wife your children with that i end hug those kids Now for the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider or patient relationship. Have a great day.